Good morning. Uh, that event is taking place 13 days from now, but we would love to know you're coming now, so we would invite you to find it on the website and sign up. Let us know that you're coming. Some of you in the room, you're not invited, you have a Y chromosome, but others are absolutely invited. We'd love to have you come and be a part of it uh, next Saturday. I can't tell you how much I appreciate our worship team and them leading us before God so that we can worship him in song today. Uh, yeah. And uh, the way that they sometimes have to show flexibility. This morning, uh, Adam was supposed to be up here as one of three vocalists and a lead guitarist in what we were doing. Adam is a police officer, and about 20 minutes before the service was told he needed to come in immediately. Uh, so be praying for Adam and whatever that involves, uh, but also super thankful for the worship team. And uh, he was supposed to lead a song or two, and suddenly others are jumping in, and just grateful for uh, their flexibility. Before we jump into today's passage, in our series, Romans Road, as we're looking at the book of Romans together, I'd love for us to review the diagram that we've been looking at the last two weeks. You remember the diagram? Romans says that there are two possible pathways that a person can be on. And the first pathway, the upper pathway, is a pathway of goodness and righteousness and love. And then there is a lower pathway that people can be on, and that is a pathway of disobedience, a pathway of selfishness. And we saw in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, that there will come a day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, those who are on the upper path, the path of goodness and obedience and love, they will have by God rendered unto them eternal life. And those who are on the pathway of disobedience, selfishness, and sin, they will receive, it said, God's wrath and fury. We recognize, and we will see clearly in today's passage, that because of our sin, we all start out on the lower path, that, that we are all sinful. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It isn't just the really big sins that deserve God's wrath. It is every sin, every bit of unrighteousness deserves the punishment and the wrath of God. And what we looked at at the end of Romans 2 is that it doesn't matter who you are. There's no, exception, no exceptions. If you're on that lower path, ultimately on the day of judgment, there's punishment. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, if you're rich or poor, or most importantly in Paul's context, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. He's writing to a church in Rome that is mixed, filled with Jews and Gentiles, and he says, it doesn't matter, there's no exemptions here. If you're on the lower path on the day of judgment, you'll face punishment and wrath. But he has also made it very clear throughout that there is a pathway that leads from the path of sin and selfishness to that pathway of love and righteousness, and it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. That for those who place their faith in Jesus, they can move to the upper path, the path of life, instead of staying on the path of death. And who is that path open to? Anyone who will believe. 
Romans 1.16 is our memory verse for this series. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Right? To the Jew first, also to the Greek. It is salvation for everyone who believes. Anyone who will place their faith in Jesus can move from the path of death to the path of life. And we saw quite clearly last week that our works are never the cause of us moving from that lower path to the upper path. There is no amount of good works we can do to move from the lower path to the upper path. There's no certain good works that we can do. It is only through faith or belief in Jesus and the work he's done on our behalf that we can move from that lower path to that upper path. But we also saw very clearly last week that the fruit of a changed life is the evidence that we have changed paths, that we now are on that upper path of righteousness and goodness and love following after Jesus. So as Paul is writing these things to the church in Rome, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, about how that everyone is equally guilty under sin, everyone who's on the lower path will face the same judgment, punishment by God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, has the, has the opportunity through faith in Jesus to move from the lower path to the upper path. There are some Jews in the church in Rome who have a question. Their question is, um, so what, what was the point of being a Jew? Like what? What, what was the point of us being a part of the, God's covenant community this whole time? If, if sin is in everyone, and the, and the punishment is equal for everyone, and salvation is available to everyone, the Jews want to know, what was the point in us being a Jew? Was there any advantage whatsoever? And that's what they ask. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? What's the advantage of us being a part of God's covenant community? What's the advantage of us undergoing the symbols that we've entered into that covenant? What's the point? Is there any advantage? Today we might ask, is there any advantage in growing up in a Christian home? Is there any advantage? I mean, if if everyone is equally going to be punished because of their sin. Everyone has salvation equally available to them. Is there any advantage whatsoever in growing up in a home that is dedicated to Christ and in a church community that loves God's Word? Any advantage whatsoever? Well, Paul answers the question about the Jews in the next verse and says, much in every way. Is there any advantage? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What advantage does the Jew have? He says, you guys were entrusted with God's very words. And what did you learn in God's word over the years? You grew up understanding God's character because of his word, that he is holy, Leviticus. That he is loving, compassionate, slow to anger, Exodus 34. You grew up understanding God's desires for people. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. You grew up understanding God's plan for salvation. What a mess and disaster sin caused, Genesis chapter 3. And how one day there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent and save people from their sins, Genesis 3.15. And on and on. He says, is there any advantage? Yes. You grew up in homes that were dedicated to the Word of God. 
teaching you who God is, his desires for people, and how we can be saved, of course there is a great advantage. And the same is true for those who grow up in Christian homes. There is tremendous advantage in growing up with an understanding of God's character. Growing up with an understanding of his desires for humanity and his plan for salvation. If you wanted to be a great swimmer, would you rather start swim lessons when you're a kid or pick it up when you're 20? If you wanted to be an amazing piano player, would you like to start piano lessons at age 7 or age 35? There are some advantages to being immersed in it from an early age, and that's precisely what Paul is saying. You have the advantage of being in the Word of God in your life. But that's only an advantage if our homes are dedicated to Jesus and the Word of God. That's only an advantage if our homes, if our churches are dedicated to Jesus and the Word of God. If you grew up in a home with parents who kept calling your attention back to Jesus over and over again, kept calling your attention back to the Word of God over and over again, would you just pause right now and give thanks to God for that? Is there any advantage to that? Paul says, yes, much in every way. You grew up with the very oracles of God. Would you just pause and give God thanks for that right now? What a blessing. What a blessing to know the word of God. But, but wait a minute. What, what did the Jews do with the oracles of God? You were given the very word of God, and what did they do with it? When the Messiah came, how did you treat him? And so it may very well be that there are some Gentiles in the church who are asking, well, well, that's nice that they had these advantages of the oracles of God, but they killed the Messiah. Aren't they cut off from the kingdom of Jesus then? Isn't that it for the Jews? Aren't they cut off? And so Paul deals with that in the next verses. He says, what if some were unfaithful? What if some killed the Messiah? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. Isn't the door shut on salvation for the Jews because of the way they treated the Messiah? Paul says, no. He says to them, the door is not shut on salvation to this generation because of the actions of a previous generation. The door is not shut on God's future plan. For the people of Israel because of the actions of those who put Christ to death. No, God is faithful. And for those who have faith, they will experience God's salvation. No matter what previous generations have done. And, And so the Jews, they've been given the oracles of God. Salvation is still open to them. And there's a celebration within the church. Because of this, because Jews and Gentiles can come together and be excited about what Jesus has done in order to make a way for them to be on that top path that leads to eternal life. But the people in this church have another question. Uh, There's a false teaching that's taking place, and Paul wants to address that false teaching in the next verses. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. What's the argument they're making here? That our sin is actually good because it makes God's righteousness shine all the more. 
I mean, every time you sin, every time you mess up, it just draws attention to the fact that God is perfect and that he is glorious and that he is righteous. And so isn't it wrong for God to punish us for our sin? Shouldn't he, in fact, be thanking us? Right? Because we're just making him shine all the more. Are you ready to go along with that? Here's what Paul says. By no means. Right? For then, how could God judge the world? If we continue down this pathway, any sense of right and wrong by which proper judgment can take place is erased. If all wrong can be called right because it makes someone else's right shine all the more, then there is no more wrong. And he says there can be no genuine judgment at this point. Uh, If I go out with my wife after the second worship service today and I am loving towards her and kind towards her and compassionate towards her and you go out with your wife today and you yell and scream at her, and you're abusive towards her, doesn't all of your mistreatment just make my treatment shine all the more? And so really, isn't your wrong right because it's just making my right shine all the more? No, that's absurd. That's absurd. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. But yet, some people are claiming this is precisely what Paul is teaching in the gospel. Look at these next verses. But if, though my, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Some people are actually arguing that this is what Paul and the other apostles are teaching. Sin all the more because it just makes God's radiance and glory shine. And Paul says, this is ridiculous. This is just an excuse for people who want to live in sin and disobedience to justify their actions. Just an excuse for people who want to live in sin and disobedience to justify their actions. And it is not a surprise that in our world, people want to justify sinful and disobedient actions. Because there's a lot of them. That's what Paul is going to say over the course of the next 10 verses. There's a lot of sin and a lot of disobedience in the world. Look at this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Are we Jews any better off? What is his answer to that? No, not at all. How did this chapter start? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Much in every way. Right? Wait, 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 what? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Verse 1, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes, much in every way. Is this just a split personality disorder that Paul's dealing with here? Is there an advantage to being a Jew or isn't there an advantage to being a Jew? Are we to listen to verses 1 and 2 or are we to listen to verses 9 and 10? Right? The, the answer is, that there's absolutely an advantage to being a Jew because you were given the very word of God. You got to grow up within the community of people who love God and want to worship him. But there's no advantage for anyone, no matter what their background, no matter what their race, no matter what their status, if they are on the lower path of sin and disobedience, judgment is what is coming. 
So there is some sense in which there is an advantage. Yes, you got the message. And another sense in which there's no advantage whatsoever because having the message isn't what's key. Responding to the message is what's key. God really wants to drive home the point now of our sinfulness. And so over the course of the next eight verses, Paul is going to participate in what the rabbis called a sharaz. It means to string pearls. Right? And if you can imagine Paul taking a piece of string and putting one pearl on at a time, that is the picture here of what he's about to do. The rabbis did this in, uh, in the Hebrew culture where they would take short little snippets of Old Testament teaching and pile it, these short snippets, one on top of another in order to overwhelm someone with the teaching of the Old Testament on a particular subject. And here, Paul means to overwhelm us with the Old Testament teaching on human sin and human wickedness. And so, he begins with Psalm 14, Psalm 55, and Ecclesiastes 7, and says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. In short, there's no one naturally on the upper path. There is no one who on their own seeks to live life in obedience to God. There's no one who on their own seeks to act out of love for God in all that they do. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Now when it says there's no one righteous and no one does good... Does that mean it is impossible to do nice things without God? No. People do nice things all the time. People do nice things without God all the time. But we have to understand, nice and righteous are two different things. Right? Nice and righteous are absolutely two different things. If we go out of the service and we come to the water fountain at the same time, I may very well let you go first. Right? That is a nice thing to do. When I was growing up, my parents regularly taught me a nice thing to do is to let another person go first. And I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> of course I'm going to be Minnesota nice to you and let you go first. Right? That is nice for me to let you go first. But is it righteous? It's only righteous if I am motivated in letting you go first by loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is nothing righteous in this world unless it is motivated by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so while me letting you go first may be nice, it's not righteous. It isn't genuinely good unless it's motivated by my obedience to God and my desire to exalt Him. There is no righteousness apart from the motivation to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no one righteous, no one good. Does, does anyone naturally, in their own self, desire to live out of a motivation for loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? No, that only happens through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within us when we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. 
We are deep in our sin. And the depths of our sin can be seen all around the world by the way that we use our tongues. Right? Look, look at this next section about our tongues. Uh, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We lie. We use our words to hurt others. We gossip about other people. Uh, on one occasion, 300 years ago, a man approached the famous pastor John Wesley and told him, my talent is to speak my mind. To which Wesley responded, that is one talent that God would command you to bury in the dirt. Right? We live in a society dedicated to people speaking their minds. Uh, speaking their minds in gossip, speaking their minds in slander calling other people names, tearing others down. When God gets a hold of a person's life, one of the surest signs that a person has moved from that bottom path of sin and selfishness and disobedience to the top path of love and obedience is their mouth changes. The words that they speak change. And no longer are their words about selfishness and tearing other people down. They're about praise and thanksgiving and lifting other people up and encouraging others. God says, you can see the sin around you by the way that people use their words. Then he says, you can also see the depths of sin around you by the way that people treat each other in relationships. Here he quotes Isaiah 59 and Psalm 36 and says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look at the way sin tears relationships apart in our world and brings ruin and misery. Brokenness in families. Brokenness in workplaces. Brokenness on social media. Brokenness in politics. Brokenness in neighborhoods. Brokenness in churches. Rather than peace, people experience discord, abuse, and separation. Why? Because of sin because of our sinfulness and how deep our sin problem is. Paul has used these verses in order to help us understand the depth of the issues of sin that we deal with as human beings. Wow. Wow. This is a lot of sin and judgment and wrath. And I don't just mean this week. From Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans 3, verse 20, we have been looking at sin and judgment and wrath. You know what that means? That means the last four sermons have all been about sin and judgment and wrath. I have to confess to you, as I was sitting in my study this week, praying about this message and thinking about this message, I had no desire in me whatsoever to preach another message about sin and judgment and wrath. I just sat there going, oh my goodness, we're coming back to this again? The depths of our sin the judgment that it deserves, the wrath of God that will be poured out upon sin. Frankly, my soul is tired of this as I sit and 
pray about it and stew in it in my study week in and week out. The more I thought about it and the more I prayed about it, the more I realized this may be exactly where God wants us to be at this point in the book of Romans. Desperate for something else. So tired of the darkness of the bad news that we're desperate for the light of the good news. So, so tired of sin and judgment that we are desperate for something that will get us out of this. And it may very well be that this is precisely where God wants us to be weary of soul about hearing about sin and judgment and wrath so that we will fully rejoice in what he has for us next week as we explore all these different aspects of the light of the good news of Jesus. Why is God hitting us with all of this sin and judgment for two and a half chapters? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. One, so that it will be clear that faith in Jesus and not our works is the only pathway to salvation. So that it'll be clear that faith in Jesus and not our works is the only pathway to salvation. Romans 3, 19 and 20, the next two verses in this chapter say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law expresses God's desire for people. And as we look at the law, we recognize how far short we fall. It shows us, what, what did it say here at the end? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. As I look at the law, I go, ah, I fall so far short of loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So many times I fall short of loving my neighbor as myself. And the law reveals to us that we can't do it. And so one of the reasons that Paul has spent now two and a half chapters on sin and judgment and wrath is to help us understand in our sinful and messy condition, we can never get to that upper path on our own. It's only through faith in the gracious work of Jesus Christ. And he's pushing us to that again and again and again. The other reason that uh, he's hitting us with all of this sin and judgment is this so that we will more fully recognize and celebrate the good news. So that we will more fully recognize and celebrate the good news. How good good news is to you depends upon how desperate you are for it. Right? How good good news is to you depends upon how desperate you are for it. If I hand out a check today for $10,000, let's pretend it would be good, right? But if I were to hand out a check today for $10,000, that is financial good news for someone. How good is that good news? Well, if I hand that check for $10,000 to Jeff Bezos, right, who's worth tens and tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars, how much joy and rejoicing is there going to be in that check for $10,000 that I hand to him? He's going to probably politely say, thank you, set the check on his desk. Later on, when he's tired of his gum, he'll wad it up in the check and throw it in the trash. Right? What does he care? But if I give that check for $10,000 to a family that's been having some medical issues, 
that because of that has fallen behind on their bills, is about to lose their home, and $10,000 will pay their bills and keep them in their home, how much rejoicing is there going to be in that situation? How good the good news is to you depends on your recognition of just how desperate you were for that good news. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, when he's at the home of Simon the Pharisee, those who don't recognize the need to be forgiven don't love God. Right? He says, those who are forgiven little love little. He says, but those who recognize this deep need for forgiveness, they love God much. They love God much because the amount of joy, the amount of excitement, the amount of goodness in the good news for us depends on how desperate we are for it, how much we recognize our situation of desperation. And so for two and a half chapters, God has been communicating to each and every one of us, you're desperate. You're so desperate. So that next week when we get to the good news, it's overwhelmingly good. There is this massive celebration in us because we recognize how desperately we need it. Next week when we read that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, it's a summation of everything we've been looking at for two and a half chapters. But then we read, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're, we're going to dig into what that means next week. But for now, just let it wash over you. Let that contrast wash over you of the desperate nature that your sin has brought you to and the astounding goodness of God's gracious act in order to move you from the lower path to the upper path, in order to bring you from death to life. Just, just revel in that good news as you contrast it with your desperate situation. Every time we take these elements together, that's what we're doing. Every time we take these elements together, we're spending time thinking about the desperate nature of our situation as sinners before a holy God. And then we are celebrating and reveling in what he has done. What we could never do through our own work, but what he has done on our behalf and the new life that he has brought us into. I want to invite all of you to just bow your heads. We're going to take a moment and I'll, I'll lead us through some short prayers in order to get our hearts and minds ready to take the Lord's Supper today. Would you just spend a moment praising your God that he is a God of great mercy and grace?